0: Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gomelski talk about George Holmes' legacy, Lusiks, and Russian and Ukrainian jewelers. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and JCKonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with...
1: Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCKonline.com, calling in from New York City, New York, New York. How are you?
0: I am okay. Kind of boiling here. It's a 100-plus degree temps in my little corner of the valley in Los Angeles. So I'm boiling, but uh, we're headed to Chicago tomorrow to spend a few days with some family. And it's my birthday and I'm going to be enjoying life, I hope. So I'm excited.
1: What is your birthday today?
0: My birthday is on Thursday. Everybody's going to be listening to this after the birthday's passed, but it is birthday for me and I'm excited to be...
1: We're sure, happy birthday, everybody.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Isn't it, let me just ask you, is it true that you and your sister have different, you and your twin sister, I should say have different birthdays.
0: It is true. And I think a lot of people have heard this story, but it is one of those like, riddle me this scenarios. So we don't share birthday, nor do we share birth month. And the way the story goes is that we were separated by midnight. So I was born 10 minutes before midnight on June 30th. And my twin sister, Julia, was born 10 minutes after midnight on July 1st. And so we've always separated and, you know, we've never celebrated them on the same day we always have our own birthdays which was a great thing growing up and it's still a great thing because a birthday is something you kind of don't want to share
1: mm-hmm. so there you go victoria trivia for everybody
0: <laughs> it's definitely a- and the other bit of that is uh, always fun for especially mothers of twins is that my mom did not know she was having twins as she went into labor and delivery so god bless that woman that she was able to keep her head somehow and not completely lose her mind when she learned
1: it's a big surprise i would say it
0: was <laughs> The big surprise, Uh, yes, very, very big. So she she handled it with grace and we love her all the more for it. Well, I want to ask you about a story that we just published that you wrote, and it was about not my immediate predecessor, but a very, very lauded and sort of somebody whose reputation really loomed large in, at least in my world, George Holmes, of course, JCK's longtime editor. I believe you served for 22 years in mostly, I guess, starting in, when did he start, the 60s or the 70s?
1: Started in the 60s, and then he left, and then he came back, and then he served as editor-in-chief, along with his wife, who worked as the managing editor, until like 96. And then in 97, when they had that big staff walkout, he came back for a little bit. And he, I guess, along with Russell Shore, hired me for JCK.
0: Got it. So the thing I didn't mention that our listeners may have implied or somewhat implicit is that George Holmes passed away on June 20th in Pennsylvania at his home. Home and uh, how old was he, Rob? He was in his 90s, wasn't he? Was he?
1: 93, 93. And he had an amazing, if you think about it, it's like 27 years of retirement. So that's pretty good.
0: That's a whole lifetime of retirement, really. Yeah, that's nice, right? I didn't, ne- I never had the chance to really engage with him. He was long gone by the time I took over this role in 2010, but he was one of the biggies. And you know, when you look back, JCK had not had that many editors. I believe I'm the ninth or 10th editor that's ever been at the helm of this publication. And he was really, legendary is a word that can be thrown around, but he really, truly deserved that description. And Rob, I would love for you to tell us about all the wonderful quotes and comments you got about his legacy, because he certainly made a big impression on all the editors he worked with and and the industry at large. What did you know of him? Because you did work with him for a bit, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I worked with him. I mean, he was mostly in Pennsylvania while I was in New York. So we didn't have that much interaction. I mean, I have a a couple of memories of him. I mean, first of all, they hired me and I was relatively established because I've been five and a half years at National Jeweler. But now that I think about it, like five and a half years is in this industry, you're not really that established. But at the time, I considered myself established, right? So then uh, I went for an interview and I remember I sent him an email and it was kind of, at the time, it was a little, like he was a little taken aback that I sent an email because it was not kind of Considered the way you did business in a weird way, you know, very different time. Yeah. You know, there was parts of him that struck me as somebody who was who watched JCK from the outside, you mostly as intimidating because I mean, I don't. Did you ever see the show Lou Grant, the TV show? He looked like the character Charlie, who was the managing editor, was played by I think uh, Mason Adams. So you know, he kind of had that distinguished look about him. So he was very distinguished and he had an uh, Irish accent. And, uh, you know, I was a little intimidated. And he did, when I I remember for his interview, he did a move, which I thought was a great move. And I urge people to do this. So I went for my interview and I'm a little intimidated because also I'm, at the time, I think there was a lot more kind of hostility between JCK and and National Jewelers than there is now. It doesn't really exist now. But at the time I was very nervous. And he, instead of interviewing me, from behind the desk he took a chair and sat in front of the desk and it was you know it's the kind of thing that makes it more personal kind of breaks down the barriers and it definitely made me relax quite a bit i mean you know he was a very very interesting guy i guess one of the things you hear a lot about him was that he worked at the Wall Street Journal and he really felt that the publication should be as good as the Wall Street Journal. And he was very good at nurturing people, at hiring people, at keeping the standards up. He was a great ambassador for the magazine. He was one of the people who helped bring about the JCK Vegas show. He won tons of awards. I remember hearing a story, and this might be apocryphal because it's secondhand, but there was another editor who went into his room and he had all sorts of awards awards on it because, you know, the publication had won all these Neil awards. And at one point, I guess they had a little fallow period. So the next time this editor went into his office, all the awards were taken down. And the guy asked him, why were the awards taken down? He said, well, we haven't won a bunch in a while. So I figured that was appropriate. So he was clearly a guy who had high expectations of himself, high expectations of other people, and he met them. And at the same time, he was extremely gracious and extremely charming and uh, extremely intelligent. And uh, I mean, you know, he's not really, in the industry anymore, but it's still, I think a lot of people feel a loss just for him and just, you know, for also what he represented, which is this kind of unyielding editorial integrity that uh, you should never compromise.
0: I mean, even I find myself nostalgic for a moment because this was all during the the years when JCK was a very, very robust print magazine, you know, massive Issues. If you look back to our issues in the 70s and 80s, they were door stoppers, absolutely massive. And this was a kind of editor and a kind of way of doing business and journalism that it just preceded, clearly, preceded the internet age, as you mentioned, even preceded the email age. And I can't help but feel nostalgic for a period that I really wasn't, didn't belong to, even though, you know, I was doing a little bit of journalism in the 90s, but certainly not in the 70s or the 60s. And he does sound like this old school editor that, you know, everybody should have as a mentor if they were lucky and could cross paths with somebody like a George Holmes in their career. If you're a journalist, that's only going to improve your skills, your writing, your reporting, your tenacity, your commitment to doing great work. So it's a shame that I didn't cross paths with him and get to learn some of his lessons. Lessons, but so many people, you interviewed Peggy Joe Donahue, of course, former editor at JCK, uh, Russell Shore, head of Shoe Pack, all really esteemed journalists in our, Robert Weldon, of course, in our business. And last but not least, Joe Thompson, who, you know, many people will know as a incredible watch writer. He left National Jeweler and went on to, I think, a career as an editor at American Time. He was lastly an editor, a, I can't remember the exact title, something like an editor-at-large for Hodinkee, the popular watch publication. And now he's, I believe, retired. We did have him on our podcast, I think it was episode four, so many moons ago. And he shared a wonderful story about George that we can hear now because we've got it in our files.
2: He had this quiet, Charisma. He could be inspirational, encouraging, intimidating.
1: <laughs> I, I remember uh, the intimidating.
2: All at the same time. I'll give you one example of what it was like and why I love him. I mean, I, I'm gonna literally see him in two weeks. I'm, we're still, I'm still in touch with him and he and Debbie Holmes, his what? wife, who was the managing editor. When I arrive, he tells me I'm gonna cover watches, okay? And I'm gonna, you know, I can remember driving home that day thinking, oh my God, what did you just do? What can <laughs> you possibly write about watches? once a month. But I quickly discovered this is really, really interesting, especially in 1977. So Seiko, which was the dominant brand in the world then, certainly in the United States, the US was the largest market, hired Bob Pliskin, who was a legendary figure even before he went to Seiko in the industry to be the new CEO of Seiko in the USA. He had been at Longine Whittenauer, where I had known him. And so I call him up and right away I want to have the first interview. I get the first interview and I ask him about Seiko's gray market, which was a touchy subject at the time. And most Seiko executives didn't want to talk about it. But Pliskin, as was his manner, dove right in. So I come back, I write the story. George edits the story. Off we go to the next month. A week or so later, I get a call from Mr. Pliskin. Listen, sweetheart. Now he called, <laughs> called me and everybody sweetheart. <laughs> he said, listen, sweetheart, I need a favor understand this was his first interview. I said, I just came from a meeting and some of the lawyers here are a little nervous about the fact that uh, I uh, talked to you about the gray market. Sure, it's not gonna be a problem, but would you mind sending me a copy of the article? And I go, well, let me check. So I go to George and I say, hmm, this has come up. And George just goes, out of the question. Absolutely not, tell him no. Okay, I get back, I call him, absolutely not, out of the question, no. He then starts to lean on me, listen sweetheart, I'm gonna crack here. We got to cooperate on this. You got to help me. So bottom line is I cave and I sent him the article. Wow. Big mistake. True confession. Is here. <laughs> oh, God. Right. It's a harmless article. Here you go. So I sent it to him. A couple of days later, phone call comes back. It's Pliskin and the lawyer. Mr. Thompson, I can still remember his name. His name was George Newmayer. And this was goes <laughs> outside counsel. And they want to make 39 changes to the text <gasps> of the article. New Mayor says, Mr. Thompson, I can't stress the importance of this. If you publish this article and then what you have Mr. Pliskin saying, Mr. Pliskin will go to jail. I say, you know, gentlemen, I hate to tell you this, but I believe this, this article is the printer. And <laughs> He said, we will rent a plane, we will fly you to wherever the printer is, and then you can make these changes. And I said, all right, listen, gentlemen, I'm going to have to get back to you. I hang up the phone, and I I've never done this before. I leave the building, and I walk <laughs> around the building in Radnor, Pennsylvania, And just curse my own stupidity and naivete for doing this and killing this career that I, I was really starting to, you know, this little germ of a career that I really wanted to develop. So I walk back into the building, I walk into Georgia, go up to George. I said, I have a problem. I need to talk to you. Okay, we go in, close the doors. What's the matter? I tell him, he said, All right, get me the lawyer's number. So I go to my desk. I come back with the lawyer's number. I'm sitting there. He calls the lawyer. Mr. Newmayer, this is George Holmes, and the editor in chief of JCK. I understand you've got a request. They talk while I'm sitting there, and I hear him say, Mr. Newmayer, I know this reporter. If this reporter said Mr. Pliskin said it, then Mr. Pliskin said it. We have a policy that you should not have seen this. I can tell you, we will not be making any changes <laughs> to, this, to this article. Wow. <laughs> and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you appreciate my position and you have a nice day. And then he hung up. So I'm now sitting, looking at him, I'm, I'm a dead man. I mean, I, you can see my stress, all of it is brought on by myself. And he looks at me, he's just nonchalant. And he says, now you understand why I told you not to send the article. Wow. And, and I'm, I'm pretty much waiting to get fired. Then he said, anything else? (laughs) (laughs) No? I mean, you know, you got anything else? No? Okay. And I left. And lesson learned.
0: Nice of Joe to allow us to sort of shine a light on George in this in this way well rest in peace Mr. Holmes I wish I had had more time with you and or any time with you and to all the people who loved you and respected you and learned from you what a wonderful legacy you leave behind
1: I think it's safe to say I mean you know he was one of the people who shepherded the magazine and we probably you never know but we probably would not be here doing this podcast or possibly in any form if not for him because you know he was one of the people who kept it alive and kept it going so we all owe him a debt of gratitude
0: Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Your reputation and what you did for this magazine, you know, lives on. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. Shall we discuss some of the some of the goings on? I mean, we're about to, you know, we're approaching July 4th, which clearly it, in the that holiday and the week after it is typically a very, very slow period for this industry. So I know plenty of people are already embarking on their holidays and getting ready to take some time off, but there's still stuff going on. Um, I just this morning sat through a Jewelers Board of Trade webinar that was moderated, or I should say it was a conversation between my dear friend, Michelle Orman. She's a very well-known publicist in this industry and Eric Jacobs, who's president of JBT. And it was billed as a state of the industry snapshot. And it was it was actually interesting. Mr. Jacobs showed quite a few graphs about things like uh, consumer sentiment and general confidence levels and how they've gone up and down over the last couple of years. He showed unemployment rates. And one of the things that stood out is he talked about how, for the most part, you will see unemployment linked to how satisfied consumers are. So if unemployment's low, generally consumer confidence is high. Those things are coupled. And what we're seeing now is for the first time since the 70s, they have completely decoupled. So we have record unemployment at the moment, but we also have extremely low consumer confidence and record low unemployment. The job sector is doing well, and yet consumers are still dissatisfied. And that obviously has a lot to do with what we're seeing in the greater markets, the turmoil over gas prices, Ukraine, inflation, general concerns about the way this country is headed. I will leave it at that. And so what we're seeing is, you know, a little inkling that jewelers may start to feel a little pinching at their bottom line. Turns out that credit card spending has dipped below, I guess, at any point in the pandemic, people were spending on credit cards. And that appears to have turned around a bit, indicating that consumers are pulling back a bit, that they're questioning whether, you know, the savings they've built up over the last couple of years are going to be necessary to whether all the different challenges we're seeing in the economy. Consumer
1: confidence you said is, is on the decline. Has that impacted retail sales at all?
0: You know JBT's Eric Jacobs didn't mention retail sales. Well, I take that back. He did notice was that he showed graphs of Google searches over the last couple of years. And he pointed out, and this was so subtle, but it was still something worth noting that clearly during COVID, searches for jewelry and searches for jewelry near me spiked. And you could see the spikes quite clearly and you could really connect them to Christmas, to Valentine's Day, to Mother's Day. These were very clear spikes. And what he pointed out was that the searches for Mother's Day in 2022 the peak of that google search ranking or you know those number of google searches was a little was a little lower than the peak in 2021 what that shows is yes there's a tiny decline in consumer interest or demand or searching for jewelry which i assume does carry through into sales, but it's very subtle. So there is a slight turn in perhaps the boom experience that jewelers have seen over the last couple of years, and especially in 2021, but perhaps nothing to get super upset about. I think we all knew that heading into Vegas and talking to people at the JCK show. I think we all got a sense that people are sobering up a bit from the high they, they experienced in 21 and thinking a little more clearly about how the greater economy might affect their business in the second half of 22. I know you wanted to talk a bit about something else we saw in Las Vegas in the lab grown space. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's something that's, that's really interesting it's something that people don't really understand it's something that could have big repercussions down the road and it's LVMH uh, luxury holdings which is the investment arm of LVMH obviously invested in Luix which is a Israeli lab grown diamond company and I've interviewed the chairman Benny Landa who's a very interesting guy started several businesses made a lot of money in digital printing and now he's into producing diamonds and i think the the thing that really raised eyebrows was the investment of LVMH and you know it is not being shy about this it wanted people to know I mean because we don't know necessarily who all the other investors were in this funding round but LVMH definitely wanted people to know LVMH has previously used Lusix diamonds on a tag Heuer watch so it's just one of those things that it raises questions why would LVMH make this investment in a lab-grown diamond company considering you know LVMH is known for luxury brands like Tiffany like Bulgari who at least up until now have exclusively used natural diamonds, mine diamonds. So the question is, do they want to get further into this? It's certainly possible they do. And one of the reasons I think they were interested in Six is they want to help it scale. And I mean, if you're going to put lab-grown diamonds in, let's say, Tiffany's or put it on a watch line, you need scale and you need consistent production. And that's definitely been one of the issues we've heard about that nobody has consistent production. So you can see why LVMH would be interested in Six, And it's just a fascinating combination.
0: I mean, that's all really interesting. And I was there with you when Benny Landa was there making this announcement about the Six group. Does this mean that the luxury sector is finally ready to embrace? lab-grown diamonds and that we should expect to see a lot more lab-grown at the high end?
1: I don't think it's clear because I don't think it's clear what LVMH is doing. Obviously, LVMH is a luxury conglomerate. So the fact that they're making this investment shows at least some interest in the sector and that perhaps they feel the sector could be complementary or represents an opportunity. I mean, I assume they didn't just do it as a money-making opportunity. It's just an investment, but they saw a strategic goal there. Uh, I think everybody's waiting to see what LVMH will do. But I think if you're a luxury brand and your big uh, brand promise is standing behind your products that they Hold their value to some extent. You know you're going to be very careful with how you approach lab-grown diamonds, which doesn't mean that they won't offer, let's say, starter jewelry or fashion stuff. I, I think we just don't know. I mean, I, I I think it's very early, but it's certainly a great coup for Lucite and for the lab-grown industry.
0: So fascinating. What else? I mean, what's happening in the world of Russian diamonds, sanctions, and everything?
1: I mean, there's a lot of rumors in the industry about banks in Europe uh, not wanting to fund Russian diamond shipments. I heard the other day there was talk that some Indian dealers uh, couldn't get visas to JCK if some of the customs people saw Russia on their passports and they would, you know, they kind of put it together. Hey, you're going to JCK and you have Russia on your passport. Some of the Indian dealers, perhaps uh, whose visas has expired, Uh, had difficulty getting into JCK. So, you know, this is something that in the United States, Ukraine is probably, I wouldn't say it's fallen off our radar, but it's, it's certainly not topic A like it was. But, you know, the government is still interested in this topic. For a long time, it seemed like the amount of Russian goods on the market was very, very small. From what I understand, it's changed. The big companies at least have found a way to get the goods out of Russia. I talked to at least one big, big, big Indian company who basically admitted that they were using Russian goods, but they saw it as a moral choice, I guess, in that they felt they had an allegiance to Alrosa and they wanted to stick by them. So, yeah, it was very slow for a while, but I think we're starting to see things change a lot in the market. And, uh, you know, the Russian goods are going to come in and, you know, they have a need to sell them. I mean, they are, from what we hear, selling some to the Gokron, which is the government agencies of precious diamonds. And in a way, that's kind of the best of both worlds, if you think about, you know, they don't have to lay off any of their mine workers, but the Russian government doesn't necessarily benefit because they're having to kind of fork out cash to get these diamonds in. But... I, I think you know the Russian issue has kind of fallen off a lot of people's radar, but it's still extremely important.
0: I have a sort of a flip side to this story. It's a story running on July fifth, which may be right around the time this podcast releases. I spoke to a host of Ukrainian jewelers, one who is actually in Kharkiv and continues to work in Kharkiv in his atelier, and many others who are refugees and have had to leave Ukraine and work out of Vienna or Geneva or other places, and. It was really interesting. The one huge takeaway after speaking to all these Ukrainian jewelers for this New York Times story that's running on July 5th is that they are so committed to improving the industry, to getting attention for Ukrainian jewelers, to basically you know, supporting that that trade in a way that's stronger than ever. And so there's so much patriotism there. I spoke to one fascinating jeweler named Roxana Romanenko, who has a three-year-old brand called Raka. And she's always used medieval motifs and kind of history as her touch point in her designs. And she's working on a collection coming out in mid-November dedicated to Cossack culture. Now, the Cossacks, I had to go into my, you know, do a little research into Wikipedia to remind myself 15th century warriors that have basically, you know, on the steps of Ukraine have defended that land for hundreds of years. And there's this resurgence of pride and interest in Cossack culture. And the way she spoke about it, it was fascinating. So she's making this jewelry that really, you know, pays homage to this culture. And one of the ways she described it, it was really interesting. She said she's using Ukrainian hemp fabric, patinated bronze, and she's making jewels in, in one case that have these little boxes where you can carry the earth with you, because according to Cossack tradition, if you die outside of the motherland, but you carry the earth with you, you'll go to heaven. And it's so interesting to see how much resurgence and pride there is in this culture that so many of us don't know, but we might now learn about through the jewelry. And it was a really, really fascinating example of you know the way people not only survive, but but really thrive and create art. I spoke to one more jeweler, and then I'll leave it at that, who, again, I mentioned him. He's working in his atelier in Kharkiv, which has been one of the most under attacked cities in all of Ukraine since the start of the war. And on February 24th, he and his wife and some friends moved into his atelier because the suburbs are not quite sort of suburbs. The residential district where he lived was not safe. And he has, you know, signed up. He's got storage facility in his keeping medical supplies there for the war effort. And he's been sort of sneaking out, collecting bomb fragments from the streets of his city and using them to create beautiful jeweled art. And his name is Stanislav Drokin. You can just find him on Instagram and see some of this beautiful jeweled objects he's making using bomb shards dropped around his city. So it really is inspiring to hear how Ukrainian jewelers are responding to this war, what they're making, how they're creating beauty and art. And you know, really holding each other up at a time of extreme crisis and extreme unpredictability. So do read my piece, not just as a plug for my own story, but just as a plug for these really incredibly resilient and committed jewelers who are doing everything they can to support their community. So please do support them as best you can. And thank you all for listening. I guess it's just on the verge of July 4th and hope you had a great holiday and a wonderful summer ahead.
1: Yes. Happy July 4th. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.